Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Welcome back to another Progress Note. Progress Note 11 to be specific. In today's discussion, Darsh and I talk about an article recently published in Nature regarding how flawed research can be and the harms of flawed research. This is definitely a topic we've talked about before, but this time we're looking at it from a different lens. And we also provide some resources that we haven't touched on in the past that can make you better equipped to digest information because we know it's coming faster than we can even absorb. After that, we talk about an interesting topic of continuous blood pressure monitoring. We're guilty of not spending enough time talking about blood pressure, but considering that nearly half of the adult population in the United States qualifies as hypertensive, this is an area that we're going to start spending more time on. So a cool article that Darsh came across that we talk about, continuous blood pressure monitors, and some of the other issues that we have seen with prior technology. But our plan is to get an expert and talk a little bit more about blood pressure and how to manage and all the things that go into that. So stay tuned for that. And until then, please enjoy this discussion in Progress Note 11. Ultimash, another day, another Progress Note. How are we doing? Doing good. Doing good, man. Excited to be here. Yeah. Cool. So we got a couple topics we're going to talk about. Again, for the listeners, we keep these progress notes. More to current events, uh, different articles that are popping up in the news. And so that way, we try to analyze those for you. Um, if they have come across your screen or if you've heard them in podcasts, uh, we'd love to kind of just break down the most recent trends or the most recent um, articles that kind of come out. So, Altmash, why don't we go through the first one, um, which was pretty interesting to me. I mean, not a new concept for us. Um, but I think it was a paper in Nature um, that talked about how research is or how flawed research can be. Um, so definitely want to provide some insight as far as that goes. Yeah. And I guess it was in the magazine article, right? It wasn't like an actual journal paper. Was it? Oh, OK. I was under the impression that it was under the actual Nature like journal, but maybe not. <laughs> maybe it was the uh, magazine. OK. It was the magazine. Gotcha. Yeah, 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 no, I think well, it was an online article that uh, people were providing commentary on different studies for. At least that's what came across my social media feed, but I initially saw it maybe, I guess I'll, I'll take this for the beginning of August and this was published on mid, in somewhere in mid-July, late July. And uh, when it came across my social media feed and I was like, oh, just another <laughs> article, people are just sharing and resharing about flawed research, nothing new. And, and we've touched on this in some capacity before when we've talked about just sifting through social media and whatnot, but just to, to get the listener up to, up to date on what the article talks about. So the title is medicine is plagued by untrustworthy tri clinical trials. How many studies are faked or flawed? And it just goes through the journey of several different scientists uh, in, in various fields and provides examples of how flawed statistics can be, how flawed research can be and, and particularly randomized control trials. So it starts out talking about this anesthesiologist who's the editor of Journal of Anesthesia, John Carlisle, and really just, you know, some time over the three year span up to like 2018, or I forget exactly what the time frame was, he would be getting up every single day and 90 minutes before his wife would get up and just look through articles. 
I don't really know who does that, but anyways, <laughs> that's what this guy's morning from 4.30 to 6 a.m. Uh, included. And he scrutinized over 500 studies, primarily randomized control trials. He was able to get access to these things that are called IPD, right? Individualized participant data in all of those trials for, um, no, not all of, excuse me, for 150 out of those 500 trials. And what he learned was that nearly half of these had some type of flaw data, half of the ones that he was able to get the actual raw data for, right? Things like impossible statistics, you know, impossible calculations or duplicated numbers. And so he started, I don't know, he coined it or, but he designated them as zombie trials, right? Because on the surface, they look real, but when you dig deeper and if you actually have the raw data available to you, and sometimes there are these databases that, that provide that, um, you really cannot extract anything meaning from, from them. The issue is that the reason he would be able to figure out uh, this information was because he had the access to the raw data. Now, mm -hmm. most of us don't have, don't dig deep enough to be able to get that, right? Obviously, it's a lot of work. It's three years, 90 minutes a day for this guy's time or whatever it was. And so when he ignored that IPD, the individual participant data, he was only able to assess that 1% of them could be pinpointed as zombie trials. Basically, that the data was flawed. It didn't really mean anything. And so... I think that just kind of goes to show is that, hey, like a good amount of stuff that we end up seeing that's actually published in journals is somehow either fabricated, just good old human error. But what you're seeing, whether or not statistically significant or clinically significant, isn't actually what it seems to be. Um, and so his suggestion was that when journals are looking at papers, that they should just assume that the research is flawed rather than accepting it as accurate. And so basically it's guilty until proven innocent. Uh, I mm. thought that was really interesting and a, and a quite poor business model and making more work for, for journals. But, but, um, and then, he, you know, it just kind of goes on and talking about examples of like um, how Japan's guidelines for osteoporosis uh, talks about this guy named Sato who had fabricated data for, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 113 papers and 27 of them were retracted but out of the 27 um, papers in, of this guy's articles that were retracted, uh, 88, they were already cited in 88 systematic reviews and clinical guidelines. And, and that's what they were used for. And so, you know, how harmful that could have been for patients because the, the guidelines and the treatments and the providers on the front lines are using these guidelines, systematic reviews to, to provide treatment for these patients. And so just a very, very interesting article that I recommend anybody who isn't in the scientific field to, to check out. Do we know what type of papers he was looking at? Like out of those 150, like were they, you know, the, the quote unquote world-class papers, meta-analyses, or were they just run of the mill? Anyone can kind of produce this paper and it got published. Primarily RCTs, primarily oh, wow. RCTs. Okay. Yeah, which is, and that's the scary part of it, right? I think when people look at that, the classic evidence peer pyramid, we realize that on the top of it is systematic reviews and meta-analyses. But most people will say, most people in the field would say, well, actually, randomized control trials are the gold standard, right? Mm -hmm. And then you take a bunch of randomized control trials, like the cream of the crop will take randomized control trials and do a systematic review on that and then a meta-analysis on that if you have this sufficient amount of data. But this is that classic thing that people have heard about garbage is garbage. If you have bad randomized control trials taking in, you're going to produce mm -hmm. a bad output, right? What's like really, really scary about that is that 
again, most physicians aren't like you just, I think we're just ingrained in our mind. It's a systematic review. So it might be good. Right. To be honest, like when I'm learning about a new topic, one of the first things that something that I'm not familiar with at all is I'll start with a review paper, systematic review. I want to know what's the state of the evidence in order for me to know what the state of the evidence is much easier to go to a systematic review or meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. And it's especially concerning. And so that was a part, actually, I dug a little deeper into because I was like, okay, what does this really mean? And so mm-hmm. I, I want to share with you, I came across another paper, a 2011 paper in the British Medical Journal, the Journal of Medical Ethics. And in this study, the, the first author is Grant Steen. And we'll put it in the show notes for people. Uh, during that 10-year frame, they looked at 788 retracted English language papers. And they've found that, you know, out of the retracted papers, the, the ones that were retracted were cited over 5,000 times. And over 28,000 subjects were enrolled in treatment-related studies. And nearly 10,000 of them were treated in 180 studies that were retracted later on. So that's the interesting part. What's the scary part is secondary studies that cited these primary studies, which are later retracted, had over 400,000 subjects enrolled and 70,000 of them were treated. Wow. So, you know, what's crazy about flawed research or bad research, we'll just call it bad science, is it gets published and I'll mention some resources later on. If people do call it out, if it does get retracted at a later point, we're like, okay, no harm, no foul. Well, actually, sometimes it's actually most of the time it's too late, right? Mm -hmm. For the example that I gave you is because people end up citing that and then they basing off further treatments off of prior research, right? That's just research one-on-one. You need to look at what's been done and you build off of that stuff. So if if your foundation is so poor and you're building off of flawed research, you might be set up for a disaster, and so right. that's that's a challenging. And what's another interesting thing about it is, you know, when papers get restricted, like particularly RCTs, if they've already been included in systematic reviews and meta-analyses, they're not, the systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have cited the paper, they're not getting retracted. Right. That's still out there, you know? And so it's, it's a little bit uh, messy uh, and scary, but um, yeah, 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 it, so, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So I guess two follow-up questions for this, right? I guess the first thing the audience might be wondering about is like, if if why aren't these journals that they're submitting to, why aren't they requesting the raw, the raw data to begin with, right? Like, why are they not comparing the published paper to whatever the researchers have started with? Right? Like, why are we waiting? Like, how do these papers even get retracted? Like, why is that not happening in the, like further, or, or I should say in more of the beginning of the course? Yeah. So I think at the outset, why is it, again, I'm not an editor of the journal. And so I, I couldn't yeah. tell you there, but yeah. I, I have been offered to review papers in different journals. And I could tell you that a lot of these positions, I would say most of the positions for, you know, so any, anybody just to, to bring you back here, when you submit a publication to a different journal, right, you have usually an editor is going to review it, but you have multiple reviewers who actually take the the deeper dive into the paper and the editor kind of just looks at it over. And sometimes the editor doesn't even look at it, right? They'll just kind of, if the reviewers accept it, the editor will accept it, depending on the journal, how stringent the criteria is. But most of these reviewers are not being compensated for, right? So it's just right. more work. I mean, people are already doing free yeah. work. And now yeah. you're going to ask them to go even deeper and, and look at the data and correspond to data and run statistics and rerun people's statistics and do the calculations over, right? And so the idea is like there has to be academic integrity and, and you're hoping those people are doing the work 
well and you're only looking at the manuscript and seeing does it make sense does it not make sense what's uh cool is something that, that another article that i came across uh came across in 2022 was published uh by like northwestern they did an analysis of like retraction of academic papers um and what they found was the retraction as i mentioned doesn't dampen the negative effects of the initial papers because by the time those papers are retracted as i mentioned the damage is already done right the harm is already done and then I already mentioned how they're included in the clinical, you know, the systematic reviews and stuff. And so, uh, you know, you can't even put an asterisk on those paper. But in this analysis, what they found was that the papers that were later retracted, they tended to have like significantly higher numbers on um, social media platforms such as Twitter, right? Hmm. And online news outlets, blogs, Wikipedia, uh, then papers that were actually never retracted. So bad science gets promoted a lot more than good science, right? And, and this makes sense, right? Because right. things that are more inflammatory are going to be shared more and and people go in their comments and they're like, I'm following this thread, right? <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and and so that's that's really cool. But they also realize in this analysis from Northwestern that Twitter is also beneficial in the sense that it does create discourse, Right. And people tend to share their opinion a lot more than just stating the facts. And you have people from all over the world who have ex domain expertise and can quickly come in and chime in on the topic and, and just, just come in, chime in and jump out. And so you have a lot of discussion like that. And in that regard, Twitter has been very, very good in helping just flag stuff that doesn't make sense. So, you know, the Twitter mob sometimes can be very beneficial in the sense of like, wait, this doesn't quite makes sense. And then everybody starts resharing it and you call BS out and, um, and then people can get those stuff retracted. Interesting. Right. So social media has kind of helped to at least look and investigate yeah. and make that deeper dive. So, you know, exactly. I guess the next obvious question is how do we as society interpret people who use these papers as data, right? And, and a lot of us obviously have confirmation bias. And so you're looking for the papers that support your belief, right? And obviously on social media, there's people like Lane Norton, Dr. Ids, who will take other people's anecdote and claims um, and then talk about the research that they found that go against that, right? And now the natural, you know, conversation in, in our heads is, well, who's right? <laughs> I mean, you can't really, if yeah. we're saying a lot of this research is flawed, how do we believe people? Who do we believe? And how political does it actually get, right? Even within the social media realm. So like, how are you going to take this information after you doing this deep dive and kind of like, what's your viewpoint now moving forward? Yeah. And so the, the articles that we talk about, the authors do point out, I, I think it's important when these things get shared. It's another reason when this thing, the nature article started getting shared is we don't want this to be fear mongering. It's not, I don't think that most of the people who are trying to produce research, it's the majority are not malicious, right? They do not have malintent, but you do have to be honest. So the BMJ article that I talked to you about, that looked at papers from 2000, 2010, right? That's probably mm -hmm. before Twitter, if I'm remembering, or Twitter was 2008 or nine. Or whatever, right? yeah, so I think definitely there, before yeah. Instagram. And so if you accelerate the next decade, now information gets shared and reshared even more rapidly, particularly with TikTok, right? So I, I'm willing to bet that that has risen exponentially. And so, you know, I think people have to just be critical when they're looking at this stuff and really any type of study out there, as you mentioned, like we all have 
a bias. And when we see papers that are aligned with our bias, we're immediately likely to promote that. Me, for instance, I love exercise. I know you do as well. So no matter what the issue is, when the paper comes out like, hey, this is exercise is good for your mental health. Exercise is good. I'm like, see, yeah. exercise, yeah. another <laughs> another win check for exercise. And and sometimes, honestly, I don't even read the paper or let alone the abstract right. and just like look at that. And, and so I'm guilty of it too because the work is uh, – to actually dig deeper and it's just that you would never be able to kind of get through of how rapidly the information is coming at you. So I think for me, takeaway is like have the look, like have um, a critical standpoint when you're, when you're looking at any type of information that's coming at you, right. To scrutinize it. And um, the other thing is like, we also have to recognize that, you know, any information piece that we're getting, we're, we're reading, it might be flawed, but Sometimes it's just innocent human error. Mm-hmm. You remember the the podcast by Brardy that comes to mind is when they're talking about the I'm calling BS. I think I forget who he had, the guy who like makes this his full-time job calling out. And they talk about how rigorous they have to be in order to publish something out there that contradicts prior research. Because, you know, these are professors, people, let's just say, who have been publishing papers. It's their livelihood. There's academic reputation. It's millions of dollars on the line it's maybe their careers and there's a way to go about disputing that as well you know on twitter you can just call somebody out and you just bash them left and right on instagram that's maybe the new thing to do and i think there's a reason for that as well but appropriately doing it in the scientific community it's like okay if you find an error in an article there's a corresponding author for a reason you know maybe you reach out to the corresponding author hey i came across a study here's what i thought this didn't make sense to me can you elaborate a little bit further or just outright point it out and more often than not, they'll just respond to, hey, thank you for catching that error. We'll fix it, right? And if they do end up fixing it, fantastic. If they don't end up fixing it, then maybe you, you take it up. Then you maybe take it up to the journal editor. And, you know, there, there's waste about it before you mm-hmm. publish and just start bashing them. Although I guess maybe just tagging them and bashing them is a lot easier to do nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it definitely will get you more views. Yeah, it's interesting. I think yeah. one of the things I've always heard about is, you know, people within the academic setting talk about, how just corrupt the publication process is, right? I mean, you're putting in all this work to get it on your resume, the funding, the reputation, and it's almost like a monopoly, right? Like these journals don't pay you. You actually have to pay them to, you know, get these submitted into like prestigious journals. Um, and so I know there's been a call obviously to action to kind of get the process changed and all, but I don't really see it happening any anytime soon. Um, but I think obviously that, that's that's one way of trying to avoid these situations from happening to to avoid flawed research and to help promote a healthy culture, at least, you know, within the academic setting so that there is more rigorous testing and more debate and more discussion. And, you know, we can then finally let go of the whole anecdote data, you know, all these just different words we throw out as if they are against each other rather than using them to help each other out. So, Yeah. I, you asked about resources or, or you point, you pointed out, um, Dr. It's, I had actually completely forgot. I guess he has like his own school now, mm-hmm. but people can look at, he's really good at Instagram. I'm, I'm a fan of his reps. We've talked about before BioLane. He does a really good job. It stands for research explained practical summaries. They're more in-depth analysis. They, I think they usually have about five papers in the health and fitness uh, studies related to that supplementation, et cetera. And they'll go deep into that stuff. We've mentioned multiple times examine.com, right? Where they'll take study summaries. Like usually 
again, topics related to health and whatnot. Red Pen Reviews is a yeah. good one. They're exclusively looking at books. And what I like that they do is they grade books based on three main criteria, scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and what they call healthfulness, which is, you know, will the book actually, will the advice in the book improve your health? And so these are all health-related books, diet books primarily. And then the one that I came across reading this article was something called retractionwatch.com. Mm. This is uh, the parent organization that runs this website. It's a center for scientific integrity. And their mission is to essentially promote transparency, integrity in science and scientific publishing. And so it's, it's a database of all the papers that have been retracted, maybe not all of them, but a lot of the papers that have been retracted and expressions of concern related to publishing events they call and they also have long form, larger impact writing, including magazine articles, reports, and books that, so I think that's actually really, really cool too, that you can kind of monitor things that have been retracted. Say, yeah, oh, that okay. is sweet. Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. Awesome. Well, anything else you want to add um, to that topic? No, just actually this, have you ever heard of Brandolini's principle or Brandolini's law? No, have not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. This is the reason why a lot of people, respectable people on social media, have started taking the stance of just starting bashing people who are producing bad information. And I forget where this guy. This is this is somewhat a recent law, Brandolini's law, that maybe ten years old. Some somebody in twenty thirteen, some IT tech guy, coined this. They call it the bullshit asymmetry principle. It was an internet adage that was going to 2013 and emphasized the effort of debunking, debunking misinformation in comparison to the relative ease of spreading misinformation, right? Hmm. And the law essentially states that the amount of energy needed to refute BS is an order of magnitude bigger than that needed to produce it. And so, uh, you know, the people, I think, get a lot, really, really frustrated. You remember, there are some people that come to mind who would just we talked about uh, these doctor famous who would call like functional medicine people quacks and this and that. And yeah. although I'm not a fan of that type of stuff, that type of behavior, uh, I can understand it. Right. And I can empathize with those people, how frustrating it must be to try to put out good information for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And that's not getting likes. That's not getting shares. That's not getting views. Uh, and I don't know what Twitter's is now, uh, interactions or whatever Twitter has X, yeah. I suppose. Is it still yeah. called Twitter? Is it called that? It's, I don't know. I think it, I don't know. I have the bird logo, but then now the X logo. So I'm confused. Oh, it's all, yeah. it's a fully X logo. So I guess it's X. <laughs> fully X logo. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that if you start bashing it, if you start making it more inflammatory, it's going to get more shares and repeats mm. and that's how you can combat misinformation. I don't know. It's really, really interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I like this Bernalini's law a lot, but it's it's so incredibly true. That is very interesting. That's a cool law. Okay. Never heard of that. But yeah, it, it definitely makes sense in the grand scheme of things as to why people have the behaviors they do on social media at least. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, let's transition then to our second topic. So this one's going to be about blood pressure and continuous blood pressure monitoring. So um, obviously with technology, whoop, polar monitors for heart rate, Respiration, I mean, the amount of wearable technology has really increased the amount of metrics that we can measure continuously, right? Continuous glucose monitors, for example. Uh, the Whoop can measure respirations and heart rate. But the one thing that has been lacking out of all of those vital signs has been blood pressure. And Peter T actually talks about this in one of his recent AMAs, I think, probably like three or four months ago, about the need for having continuous blood pressure monitoring. I think the reason why, right, there's a couple things, is 
in the article that we, we were reading, about 47% of U.S. adults have a diagnosis of hypertension, right? So it's pretty high. And, you know, those, the sequela of having high blood pressure over time is multi, you know, factorial. It can also affect the kidneys. It can lead to stroke. It can affect the heart, obviously. And so thereby, a lot of these organs and then eventually affecting the brain as well, right? When I mentioned stroke. So having continuous blood pressure monitoring will just helps with more data points, right? Because the only times we're really measuring blood pressure is maybe when we go to the doctor's office, if you're healthy, if you're hospitalized, you might only do it with your vital signs, which might be every shift. So every 12 hours or every eight hours, um, or you might even have a blood pressure monitor at home. But how frequently are you checking? Maybe in the morning when you get up or during your routine, maybe after eating lunch or at night, right? So we're not getting enough data points that actually help us accurately measure blood pressure. And so what we do is we rely on the number that we see on the screen. And we take that at face value and say, okay, your blood pressure is 150 over, let's say 80. And that means you have high blood pressure. Well, not necessarily, right? It's the same concept as all our other vital signs. If you're working out and you just got done a workout and you check your heart rate, it might be in the 120s, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have sustained tachycardia, right? Every single day, um, your respirations are going to be high. That doesn't mean you need more oxygen because your oxygen saturations are going to be okay. So this principle, which really makes me upset in the hospital, right, is when I'm on call and I'll get a phone call from the nurse saying, hey, blood pressure for this patient is 160 over 90. What do you want to do? Should we give the hydrology? You know, and most people, we have parameters in the hospital, right? So don't call me unless it's above X, 160, 170, 180. And then there's usually this training rule that we have that when it's over a certain number, you give hydralazine, which is a medication that will quickly lower the blood pressure, but can have a compensatory increase in heart rate, right? So it's a very transient medication that just quickly lowers the number. And this goes down to the principle, right? Of like, even when we look at MRIs and back pain is that we're taught don't treat a number and don't treat an image, right? You treat the patient and you treat the patient's symptoms and how they're feeling. But so often in medicine, when it comes to blood pressure, we're just treating that number. And then we obviously have this concept of white coat hypertension. So when people go into the doctor's office, they may naturally just have an increase in blood pressure just due to either being stressed or having some anxiety, just situational, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that they have high blood pressure, but it's just in that instance. The other second thing here is that people don't take blood pressure accurately, right? So the proper way of taking blood pressure is actually sitting down, feet on the floor, uh, making sure your respirations are okay. You should not be having, you should not be measuring after smoking or any caffeine. Um, and you should be pretty much in a, in a peaceful environment and you should be at least sitting down there for five minutes and then taking the blood pressure, right. For like the truest, most accurate rating. So now you can imagine you're in a hospital with lines beeping, nurses are coming in and out. You're not even sitting. Most of them are laying in the bed, right? So naturally when you're laying down, your blood pressure is going to be higher. Um, so all of these things pretty much confound when they're laying down higher. Usually, supine? Right? Yeah. Yeah. When they're supine higher. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause the blood flows up okay. when they're sitting down, you get the orthostatic hypotension. Blood goes, uh, Oh down. my God. This is, this is how, you know, I've been outpatient medicine too long. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. So, so think about it, right. When I'm getting these pages from the nurses at night, these patients are laying down They're saying, Hey, this blood pressure is 170 or whatever. What do you want to do? Most people will get the hydrology, right? Cause, cause you're just treating the number. And that's what upsets me because my go-to is we're not going to do anything, right? Unless it becomes urgent hypertension or emergent hypertension where the blood pressure reading is super high, over 180 in the 200s, there's some sort of symptoms like a headache or you know there's some end organ damage, then sure, that's going to require some immediate intervention. Otherwise, 
I keep telling, I tell my nurses that, Hey, this is just one data point, right? Let's check in 30 minutes even and see if it goes down, especially if they're asymptomatic or let's check at the next shift and the next shift after that. If I'm seeing this up and down kind of data points for blood pressure, I'm not too concerned. But if I see after two, three days that it consistently is elevated, that tells me that I need to give a blood pressure medication, right? Whether it's a calcium channel blocker um, or whatever it might be, but it means that they probably have sustained hypertension at that point that I need to treat this, right? So now we kind of come full circle as to why continuous blood pressure uh, monitoring is useful because now you're just getting so many data points that you can actually understand, is it sustained or are we just getting throughout the day these inflection points, right? And when are these inflection points happening? So you can liken it to a glucose monitor where after certain meals, your glucose is going to spike. Okay. You now know what to do um, because of that. So this gets us back to the research article about this um, or in University of California, San Diego, there's a company that has created a blood, continuous blood pressure monitor um, device called BP Clip. And so you actually just attach it to your cell phone. And I'm not going to get too into the weeds of the physics, but using the light sensor, um, you can basically tell how much blood flow there is, right? So if, there, if there's more blood flow, light actually gets picked up more. If there is less blood flow, it doesn't get picked up. The other cool thing, though, is they measure your pressure of your finger. So how hard are you actually pushing onto this clip? So they have a spring um, that can tell you how much pressure you're pushing, right? Obviously, if you're pushing harder, you're getting less blood flow to the area. If you're pushing lighter, you're getting mm -hmm. more. So using these metrics, um, they're essentially able to calculate your blood pressure um, in that moment. Now, sure, it's not continuous second to second to second, but obviously user-friendly, you're able to um, keep your finger on there how many ever times you want in a day to get more data points. Now they say, okay, there are already devices out there. The problem is the other devices require external calibration. So you don't even know when they're in sync, right? This is like blood pressure cuffs, things like that, that require this calibration because they, they use indirect measurements to calculate the blood pressure. Whereas this BP clip is actually using direct measurements of your blood flow of pressure and just using physics to actually calculate um, your blood pressure in that moment. So I just think it's a, it's the next wave of a, it's the next vital sign at least to come out with something that we can measure more continuously. And I think just given that, you know, close to 50% of American adults have hypertension, it at least allows us to one, treat it better, but two, also give us better education as far as not giving transient medications, but actually proper medications um, for people so that we can treat or we don't have to treat unnecessarily couple of follow-ups. The points that you made, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, with, with patients being in the hospital and healthcare providers who interact with them starting freaking out that the, that, you know, you have these, essentially how labile it is and whether we're not going to intervene because we're treating the number for the outpatient. That's not an issue, right? Like you're seeing a doctor, maybe you're seeing a doctor three months from now, and it's really hard to assess. So this data that you're talking about, Two things I really love about it. Well, one, they mentioned how the cost is going to be minimal compared to the blood pressure cuffs. Like the good quality cuffs that you're going to get are going to be 50 to 80 bucks, maybe 100 bucks off of Amazon in the pharmacies and whatnot. And then they're not easy for somebody to figure out, right? Line up with the brachial artery, do that. Most people, the cuff isn't the right size or doing it over their sleeve. And okay. And this is not even accounting to everything that you talked about, how you have to be sitting there for five to 10 minutes, feet, all the things that I mentioned already. So those two things. So 
my question for you is, are there other devices similar to this technology out there where people are looking it off? Because it sounds very similar to um, how we're checking pulse ox, right? You're, you're evaluating that a pressure off the finger. Is there stuff out there that you're familiar with? There are blood pressure apps, at least, that you can check, like by just putting your finger on the sensor. The problem is it's right. not using as much physics as this company is, right? Like this company has it down sure. pat to using the light coming through a pinhole, basically being able to measure the pressure. So they're able to actually measure blood flow more accurately. But I don't know if there are any other companies similar to BP Clip um, that are out there. But I do know there are other companies out there that use a similar kind of concept, but just indirect measurements. Yeah. Blood pressure probably just as important when it comes to cardiovascular health, brain health, really every single organ that you can think about. And something that we're kind of guilty of not talking enough about in this podcast. So we need to pencil in and get somebody and, and spend some time talking about that. Again, as you mentioned, nearly 50% of the people, at least in the United States, that are going to be pre-hypertensive, unrecognized, just as much as, you know, we were talking about metabolic health, and this is part of that component. And so just loosely, peripherally, we've touched on that, but it is going to be just as responsible for things of, you know, not necessarily atherosclerosis, but certainly, you know, CVAs and cardiovascular disease and things of that nature. So we got to, we got to dive a little bit deeper into that too. Yeah, definitely. Silent killer, right? And even complicated with atherosclerosis, right? So it's a double whammy. You know, if you're most people who are probably atherosclerotic have some form of blood pressure, I'm assuming, or hypertension. So yeah, definitely into CVA and whatnot. Future is bright, man. Yeah. I'm looking at, I quickly pulled up type of continuous blood pressure stuff on Amazon. And yeah, it's all cuff based. Hmm, it's all okay. cuff based. I'm not seeing, I mean, there are apps that are connected via Bluetooth to, but again, cuff-based and bad, not good reviews. Oh, yeah. I guess maybe there are some watches that are probably telling you that information, right? But that's looking off of radial artery, so that's not going to be as as precise, or, or it right. will be more precise checking the elasticity. If they can measure the pressure. So that's the thing the article talks about is like, you can always get light shining through to see how much blood is getting picked up. The harder part is to figure out how much pressure um, you're putting on the skin, which can then also evaluate how much blood flow is actually coming through the uh, device. Awesome, man. Oh, I to circle back to the very first comment we made about that Nature article. It yeah. actually is published. First, uh, only single author, Richard Van Nordine, uh, published in July of 2023. So this oh, year, so it's actually based off the Rachel article, uh, Nature article, which does not have an abstract available, and hmm. I am not paying for that. So, but either way, they're both good. We'll <laughs> link them in the the show notes for people to to take a look at. Yeah. See, but that's the issue. We got to pay for it. This is like exactly the point, right? Like the vicious cycle of trying to get good information and whatnot. Agreed. On that note, I don't know if you have you heard of SciHub. SciHub. No. This is a website that tries to democratize research then, you know, clearly they're believers, whoever the originator is, you got to check this out. They have research articles available for free for people. I'm not actually okay. sure if it's legal or not, to be honest with you. It's so, the most controversial uh, project that. in modern science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People are, uh, so, so anybody who does check it out, you know, use at your own discretion and, uh, this is not medical or legal or any type of advice for people to check out. But it is interesting that somebody pointed it out. It's like, oh, wow, this is this is interesting that they have stuff that they're just making open access 
because they believe everything should be open access. So they have been hit by lawsuits. Yeah. On their website, <laughs> they talk about it. Have they? Yeah. They openly talk about how they have a legal fight. Yeah. All right. At least they're open about that. Yeah. I just learned about it not too long ago for somebody. They're like, Oh yeah, this it's so maybe, maybe in that reason we, we shouldn't be using it. So interesting. Very cool. Yeah. A lot of medicine, chemistry, and biology in here. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that does it. I mean, the last thing I was going to say is as far as blood pressure goes, I know, uh, Joel Kahn, um, who's also been in the Joe Rogan podcast. He's a, he's a cardiologist. He talks about continuous blood pressure monitor. So I, we can definitely try to get him on, um, to, to, to deep dive blood pressure and whatnot. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think it was a good episode, uh, for the audience. If you guys have any questions about anything, let us know. We'll put all those resources into the show notes and, uh, We'll see you with some more episodes and then progress notes in the future. All right, man. All right. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Medicine Redefined. As always, we are highly appreciative of your support. And if there are any other topics that you want us to cover, or if you have any feedback for us, or just want to say hi, we are at medredefined at gmail.com and also medredefined on all the social platforms. So please feel free to reach out to us. And lastly, I want to thank our team, Ethan Jew and Aretha Yepuri for the help and production of this podcast. And before we sign off, do remember the important disclaimer that everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nor should it be construed as medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. However, if you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe, review, and share with anyone who you think will gain value from this. And until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.